What if each one of us lived up to our potential and managed our resources so well that we could provide for ourselves, our families, and our communities in a meaningful and substantial way? Join Step Right with Lynn, the show dedicated to empowering socially conscious individuals to manage their financial resources for the benefit of themselves, their families, and the greater community. Here's Lynn Wedham, Certified Financial Planner and Managing Partner at Step Right Capital Planning. Good morning. Welcome to Separate with Lynn. My guest today is Barbara Malera, and the topic of our show is Teach a Mother, Change the World. Barbara will be telling us about a recent trip she took to Bangladesh with the Amarok Society and the work that the organization is doing to educate women in Bangladesh. Barbara Malera recently retired from the Brandt Family and Children's Service after serving them for 15 years. Prior to working with the Brandt Family and Children's Services, Barbara lived in Belize for six years, teaching school and working on a drug education project. Barbara enjoys traveling, always anxious to see new places and to meet new people. Last year, when Barbara learned about the Amarok Society, she knew she wanted to be involved as a tribute to her mother. Barbara is married to Emilio and lives in St. George, Ontario. Good morning, Barbara. Morning, Lynn. It's nice to have you with us this morning. Well, thank you very and much. Before we get to our main topic, uh, tell us a little bit about what it was like to live in Belize. I've never been there. Um, my daughter worked on a cruise ship, so for a number of months she was there every two weeks. But it sounds so exotic. What was it like? It was fantastic weather all year round. Really. That was- Yes, yes, absolutely ideal. There was maybe six weeks in the winter season where I'd heat water to have a to wash in the morning. Other than that, never. Wow. It was great. And people were really nice. It was very interesting. When I lived there, there wasn't a whole lot of tourists. I think it's changed quite a bit now. But uh-huh. it was just your ideal little country. Wow, it really, really, really sounds nice, especially after the yeah. winter. We've just come through here in Ontario. Yeah. I avoided winter for six years. It was fabulous. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And your work there was teaching. I taught school. I went for a job interview, and they said, um, we think, you know, we like you. And I said, well, I'm really not trained. I'm not trained as a teacher, you know. And they said, you were educated in English, were you not? I said that's true. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. anyways, I got the job. Cool, cool. Yeah, and then I worked in the drug education program. Okay, and and what did what did you do there? Was that in the school as well? No, it wasn't. It was um, my position was financed through CUSO from Canada, an NGO from Canada, and um, the project, the majority of the projects was financed by the from the U.S. It followed a drug education program mm. that was successful in the US and we tried to do it there. Okay. Yeah, is that a problem for their young people there? Yes. Okay. Yes. As it is pretty well everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, let's talk about the Amarok Society. Yeah. How did it how did it get started? Well, about 10 or 12 years ago, um Jem and Tanis Monroe from Canada moved to Bangladesh to be involved in in a large international um, NGO 
developing education. That was going to be Tanis's job, and she was working in that. They had been involved in the Canadian North in an education program, and then they decided that they wanted to change venues. So they went to Bangladesh. And while they were there, they became aware that there was an awful lot of children living in the slums that were not being educated, did not have opportunity to the resources that were being brought by the international NGOs or being provided by the country, and they felt compelled that they needed to do something about these children. There were huge numbers of them, and they just realized that they had no future. So and when, they, you, when, you, when you speak about NGO, what does that mean? It's a non-governmental organization. So, for example, Project Concern, Project Care, there's all sorts of large and small agencies that are not government agencies that work in developing countries and in different parts of the world. Okay, so, so it's, next- it's not government. So, right. So these are like the people in the country that are that are trying to to make change through NGOs. Well, they could be, or they likely are from Canada, or Switzerland, or Norway, any country in the world who wants to help another country. Um, and so they they send people. They will hire some in-country staff as well, but they will bring people from their own home country, usually to get involved in some kind of project or series of projects in another country that right. is more of a developing type country. So, what what was the Monroe's approach then? What what did they see as the as the way to help? Well, they saw that the that the best way to be able to reach all these children would be to educate the mothers, and that then the mothers would be able to educate their children and their neighborhood children. And they thought that would be the most effective way, which has turned out to be that way. It is very effective. Right. So a lot of people might have seen the problem, and they might have thought, well, we have to educate children, right? Children of the future, we have to educate the children. How do you think... You know, what do you think made the Monroes see the value in teaching the mothers? Well, I think that they realized that the mothers were more accessible than the children and that okay. you can't really just take a bunch of children and look at them. They're not your children. You you know, the, the liability, the responsibilities, and the resources are huge. And then they have to be able to get the support of their family anyway mm-hmm. That's if you're true. not going to just be a group babysitter. Mhm. So, Barbara, how did you get involved with Amarok? Well, in January 2014, um, both of my parents passed away after living very long and happy lives. And I just realized at the point that I needed to evaluate what I was doing, that life is finite. I don't think it sort of hit me quite as much. And that if there were things I wanted to do, I needed to do them. And and then I heard about the Amarok Society. I was invited to hear Jem Monroe speak, and I was very impressed by the project that he outlined. I was impressed by the approach. I was impressed by him as an individual. And I was also somewhat um, pleased to know that the Rotary Club in Canada had been very supportive. So I thought, okay, I don't have to look into it too much in terms of, you know, is it doing what it says it's doing or is it spending the money correctly? I thought they'd done that. So as I listened to him, I felt as if my mother was there, and I felt that she would be very supportive of it. 
and he described that they had at that point um, about 19 or 20 schools in the slums of of Dhaka, the largest city, about 12 million people or more, and in Kulna, a smaller city, but also with significant slums, that they only worked in the slums, that they had mothers, and that they always were hoping to expand. And it was as if my mother said, open a school. And that's what I looked into, and that's what um, I did. And so the school is called the Libby Women's School, named for my mother. Right. So it's it's a very, um, this project is very personal for you then. Yes. Yes, it's because you. So. Yeah, you've you've done this in honor of uh, of both of your mother or both of your parents or um yeah. how do you well, how do you look at it? I look at it as really both of my parents, but it's named for my mother. My mother um was very interested in women's education, was really pleased that she lived long enough to see lots of women going to university and colleges and developing the careers that had previously been you know, pretty well exclusively for men. And she and and I knew that she would be very well very happy to help other women in countries reach their potential. I knew that at various times in her life she had volunteered with immigrants and and in school, so I knew that was exactly what she would be interested in. Right, right. And it's obviously your passion as well. Yes. Yes, um, I think education you know, with the work is that, the key. Right, that you work you did in Belize as well. Mm-hmm. Um, all all points to it um, as being a passion um, for yourself, and um, you know, and this, you know, just having this thought that um, that you're fulfilling your mother's wishes and your mother's goals and and your mother's, um, uh, I guess, your mother's passion for education as well makes it a very very personal um, project yes. for you. Yes, I would so, say. Yeah. Um, so then you um, you joined the board of. Um, I did of the Amarok Society, and uh, they were needed at the time that I started to show a lot of interest. There was a couple of vacancies on the board, and so they asked me if I would fill one, which I said I would, and mm-hmm. so so I. There's a very active secretary treasurer and some other board members, and my job has turned out to be um, mainly I receive often I receive letters from mothers in Bangladesh who attend one of the schools who are being sponsored by a Canadian or an American sponsor, and I make sure the letters get to them. Mm-hmm. And there's other certain things. There's some you know consultation and things like that. You know, if, if it's any board as to which directions they're going in. Right. So how did you end up going to, um, you know, you had this job yeah. in in Canada. How did you end up yeah. going to uh, Bangladesh? Well, well, I as I started to get involved and look into it, I really felt that I really wanted to go to Bangladesh, and I wasn't quite certain how because it's not an organization that sends its board members to Bangladesh or anything like that, mm-hmm. although it's, you know, something I wanted to do. There was a travel agent named Nick Lally in Toronto, who's also a Rotarian, who was very involved and interested in the Amarok Society and also in putting a 
a group together who would go to Bangladesh. So he went to Bangladesh, came back, and he put together a 12-day um, tour, which would be visiting the Amarok schools as well as spending some time in, in a couple of other parts of the country. And when I saw that, I thought, well, that's a wonderful entry for me. And I so I decided, so I signed up, as did my brother, to go to Bangladesh for the 12-day tour. And I arranged to stay for two more weeks in Dhaka, where um, 10 of the Amarok schools were. So right. that's why I got there. Okay, so you ended you ended up. Um, that's a, a fairly long trip then. It was thirty um, days. Yes, lovely. Yeah. Yeah, it lovely. was great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and what part of um, so when you talk about Dhaka, um, what part of Dhaka then did you spend most of your time in? Um, well, I spent um, most of my time during the day in the slums where the schools were and where the Amarok Dhaka head office is, or office is. And I stayed at a small hotel in a district just just outside of the slums, which was considered to be a safe district and, and pretty easy for me to get from from my hotel to a meeting spot where somebody would meet me and walk me into the slums. Mm-hmm. Um Yes, go ahead. Yeah, and I traveled each day primarily by rickshaw, which I decided is my favorite uh, form of transportation <laughs> at this point. It's really quite lovely. It's um, a bicycle-ridden or driven rickshaw, and so you sit in an open carriage at the back, and you're pulled, and you go through the streets, and it's really a neat way to travel. Yeah, it, would, it wouldn't have done us very well in Ontario this uh, past winter. No, it wouldn't. That's another reason <laughs> <laughs> to go to Bangladesh in the winter. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, it's time for us to go to a commercial break um, okay. right, right now, Barbara. So we'll do that. And when we come back, we want to know more about what you saw um, in Bangladesh on your trip. Great. I look forward to it. Is there a contribution that you dream of making? In society, planned giving seems to be presented as something you do once you're incredibly wealthy or planning your estate. Step Right with Len focuses on good money management and planning your contribution at every step based on the issues important to you. Learn how to expand the goodness around you and take responsibility for the issues important to you. Tune in for Step Right with Lynn every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Central Time, 7 a.m. Mountain Time, and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on A to Zen.fm. This is Step Right with Lynn. Lynn Wedham is a certified financial planner. To participate in the program today, please call toll-free in the U.S. 815-880-8255. That's 815-880-TALK. Or in Canada, 613-800-8736. Or you can Skype us at atozen.fm. You can also make the choices to ask or comment by email by sending to lynn at stepright.ca. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to Step Right with Lynn. I'm your host, Lynn Wedham. With me is my guest, Barbara Malera, who has been telling us about the work of the Amarok Society and a recent trip where Barbara witnessed the success of their projects in Bangladesh. So, Barbara, tell us what impacted you the most uh, on your recent trip. Well, 
First of all, I need to tell you that Dhaka is a huge city. It's loud. It's chaotic. It's often dirty. It's noisy. And in the midst of all of that, there's these huge, huge slums. And it's just overwhelmed by everything, all your senses. And in the midst of all of that, there was an office where I met many women who were coming for teacher training during the time I was there. And I also went to some schools where I saw the women who were being taught. And that just was overwhelming to me. It was overwhelming and wonderful to see women who were not backward and not shy the way many of the women in the slums are, who were excited to learn who, and who would have conversations about how their life had changed because they had their education. And that was just the most amazing thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so they're learning English. What else are they learning? They're learning how to read and write in their own language, Bengali. They're learning English to read, write, and speak. And they're learning arithmetic. Those are sort of the formal topics. And then in addition to that, they're learning about a lot of social things and health things. They're learning about hygiene, about child care and child rearing, about nutrition. They're learning that uh, education is the key to success. They're learning that their girl children should not be married young, 12, 14, 13, 15, 11 even, even younger you hear sometimes. That, mm-hmm. that They're learning that they need to be able to get their own children to go to school, to have education. They're learning really that they are capable. Wonderful. They are capable. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Um, what about nutrition? Um, you know, that seems so basic to us, but do they not begin with an understanding of the importance of nutrition? Not, No, not really, because there's not an, always a lot of easy accessibility to things. Um, I, I read the letters, as I mentioned, I get the letters, and in conversation and in reading letters, I'm hearing women are saying that they've learned that you have to have vegetables and fish and mm. and in the same meal. So if you just give your children rice and potatoes, it's like giving them the same thing twice, and it's not going to give them everything okay. they need. And okay. so they're learning to have balanced diets. They're also, and this is how, how things blend together, because they're learning to read and write, they can go to the grocery store and read the label, see what's in it, and also see oh. if it's past its expiry date, which many things ah. are. And so they do that with medicines now and with food, and they tell me that often other people in their neighborhood comes to them and ask them to help them wow. because they don't want expired food either. Right. That's wonderful. Yeah. When you yeah. when you are speaking to women about a subject from their culture, um, like being married young and, um, you know, something that, that's so mm-hmm. basic to their culture that, you know, we we see a problem with. Are they open to that? Um, do they already have a sense that it's not the best thing and they're being reinforced? Um, where do they start from in that discussion? I think that they're really, really happy when they find out that somebody will listen to them and that 
what they suspected is wrong is wrong. Women don't look forward to getting married because it's a terrible thing for them often. I mean, some women will say, I have a love marriage, and that's that's different. But most women will say that they their parents married them when they were 14 or 13 or 15. They don't look forward to it. They know there's nothing they can do about it. They know that their own health gets ruined. And so they're really very, very um, pleased and grateful when it's the topic is raised that this isn't the way it needs to be. Or be. Mm-hmm. And they so are there, the first to line up. Yeah, so there is something in um, in young women's mind that that it's not something they want. That's right, but it's also in their mind. There's nothing they can do about it. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. So. And so and does it open um, does it open doors for women financially at all? Does does it create opportunities for them that way as well? Yes, it does. Very interesting to ask that because I've been reading some of the letters, and one of the group of women in one of the schools have formed a little cooperative where they each put money in every month and. They keep the books. They're letting me know very clear that they're keeping the records so they know how much each person puts in. And then each person is able to draw upon that and in that way have a more significant amount of money that they can borrow and pay back. Hmm. And that's, then there's... That's, yeah, that's so... A, yeah, that's quite... Yeah, it's uh, amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, they're very pleased because they say that they could never save, you know, a significant amount of money for something, but in this way they're able to do that. They also are saying that because they can um, do sums and and they can read and they can do their arithmetic and all, they're able to get a better job often. A lot of the jobs that they'd had before, the only ones open to them would be to be perhaps a maid in a wealthier home, to work in a garment factory, to be a vendor on the street, to do things as awful as just breaking bricks all day for construction, uh-huh. things like that. Uh-huh. But now they're able to, because they can read, they're able to get a better job. They're able to be of assistance to their husband. Say, for example, if he has a job, they can help him with some bookkeeping or uh-huh. reading things. So yep. it makes a huge difference. We sponsored a couple of tailor training courses and so now we've got women who are able to, sometimes they rent a sewing machine a couple of days a week. Mm-hmm. In some cases, they able to get one, and they can start their own small business of sewing. Right, yeah. And save money that way. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, and a lo- I love the little banking idea. The little yes. Banking is, uh, that's that's yeah. really amazing. Yeah. Uh, so what's, so, I mean, there's, Different organizations that are working um, in the world with some of the same goals as the Amarok Society, what makes the Amarok system so unique? I think its brilliance is that it teaches mothers. It also realizes that they don't have to have big resources. A school, for example, the Libby Women's School is the largest of the Amarok schools right now, and it's... it's, um, maybe the size of a nice size downstairs of, well, half of a downstairs of a house. But there would be um, 30 women in it, 
and they come. But a lot of every day, and they dress up as well as they're able to, and they're all supplied with pencils and notebooks. But many of the schools are much smaller. They'd be in a room that's maybe 10 by 12 or 8 by 10, the size of a normal little house in in the slums, which are okay. tiny, tiny little one-room things. They might have a window in it. They might not. But 25 to 30 women will sit on the floor. The walls are covered with posters and things to be, you know, with alphabets and with stimulating things. And there's a, a blackboard, and there's a teacher at the front who who has interactive classes with women, and they will have props of various things. And there's a lot of music used, so they teach songs that will convey language plus um, give a lesson about something, talk about some topic. And in this way, these women come and they, they learn, and then each one of those women, and this is amazing, their commitment is that they will go home and they will have their they will be the teacher of their own little school called the mother teacher or the aunt teacher to their own children and their neighbor children who will come and often sit on their bed, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of them, just sitting in the bed or on a mat on the floor and learning, and learning so well. Yeah, it's amazing. It's yeah. like watching little 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 birds in a nest when they're sitting on the bed. Um, so... So what's happening is you've you've got a number of women who are coming together to learn, and it sounds like they're very engaged. And then they yes. they go and they start little schools called where their mother teacher or aunt teacher you said yeah, and they yeah. and so in their homes then they're they're teaching children as yes. well. Okay, yes. so so you're you're reaching the children through. Um, through the mothers, and how engaged um, are the mothers that are learning, and how engaged are the children in the homes? I would say 110% almost across the board. The mothers come, and over and over again in their letters, they will say that the hours they spend in school are the best hours of their day, where they have friendship, where they're learning, where they can have conversation, they're receiving support from each other, things that they have never experienced because the life for a girl child in particular is a dismal one children girl children in particular but it's true of boys too have no opportunity in the slums to go to school to learn anything the girls are married very young and then they become dependent upon their husband and in-laws living in their house and have nothing they have they say over and over again they have no respect and then they say I have my education, and my husband respects me now. My community respects me. Yeah, yeah. And I remember going into one of these little, little, little huts. Well, it's not even a hut. It's a little tiny room, and there's maybe six little children sitting on the bed, and one was a nine-year-old who had never been to school before. This at nine years old, it was her first time she'd ever had any kind of education. and this is true with many of the mothers that come to school. They're 18, 19, 25, 45, and they've never been to school. Wow. Wow. And, oh, this, yeah, so many things that we take for granted, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. these schools also, what's brilliant about them is they run on a shoestring because it's the quality of the teaching that they receive and the relationships that develop in them 
that it's just like pouring water on a on a little sapling that's struggling for life. It blossoms. It grows. Right. Yeah. So it's amazing. Because they have such a hunger for um for the learning too. Yes. Which I think must be intuitive to human beings but that we often over here mask it with so many other things we get distracted. There mm-hmm. there's no distraction. They want their education. Yeah, they right. want it. Yeah. 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 And they never thought they could, but now that they can, they're not going to let it go. Yeah. Um, it's it's already time for us to go for break again, Barbara. Amazing. Um, (laughs) It's going very quickly, isn't it? It is. Um, Yes. And we will be right back with more of this story after this break. Okay. Is there a contribution that you dream of making? In society, planned giving seems to be presented as something you do once you're incredibly wealthy or planning your estate. Step Right with Lynn focuses on good money management and planning your contribution at every step based on the issues important to you. Learn how to expand the goodness around you and take responsibility for the issues important to you. Tune in for Step Right with Lynn every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Central Time, 7 a.m. Mountain Time, and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on AtoZen.fm. This is Step Right with Lynn. Lynn Wedham is a certified financial planner. To participate in the program today, please call toll-free in the U.S. 815-880-8255. That's 815-880-TALK. Or in Canada, 613-800-8736. Or you can Skype us at atizen.fm. You can also make the choices to ask or comment by email by sending to lynn at stepright.ca. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to our show today called Teach a Mother, Change the World. My guest is Barbara Malera. <clears throat> Barbara, before we leave the, the, the subject of the early um, marriage, do you have any stories of, um, you know, what really goes on as far as, you know, this this idea that's so foreign to us as women in North America? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um about these young marriages. Yes. I, I can tell you um the story of one of the women who is now a teacher in in one of the Amarok schools. She told us that she was married off when she was fourteen at that point and to an older man who she might have been his second wife, for example, because he might have been a widower and he might have been in his 40s, he might have been in his 30s, he might have just been in his 20s, but she was only 14. Mm-hmm. And she had no choice in the matter. She was illiterate. She said, nobody respected me, not even my husband. Nobody expected that I could go anywhere or do anything. But very quickly she had two children because that's what happens, and a boy and a girl. And she feared for her future, and she feared for their future, and she didn't know what was going to happen. And then she found out through the grapevine in the slum, as everywhere, about the Amarok School, and she decided that she was going to go no matter what. And part of the barrier for her going, as it is for most of the women, is nobody in their household is going to support them because, you know, you should be here helping and cleaning and looking after and and getting food, you shouldn't be going to school because you're illiterate and it's not going to work and that sort of thing. So there's lots of barriers. And But she 
she crossed all the barriers. She went to school. And one of the big things that she did was she decided that her daughter was never going to have an early marriage. And that was huge because it meant she had to uh, fight the tradition and stand up to her husband. But he started to see that there was value in his wife having education. So the daughter didn't get didn't get married at an early age, and she still isn't. She's about 20 now. She, mother became literate. She gained the respect of her husband and she of her community, which she's very proud of, and her face just lights up when she's telling you about this. She's now been trained as a teacher in the Amarok system, and so she's a teacher of her own school. And her daughter, who is now 19 or 20, I think 20, she's become an assistant teacher. So doors have opened for both these women. Teacher positions and assistant teacher positions are paid positions in the Amarok schools. And so they're able to contribute to their home, and the daughter is able to stop getting married until she has a love relationship that she wants to get married in. So that's wonderful. That's yeah. one of that's a story I can tell you. And that's repeated many, many times over in the schools. Yeah, yeah and, and you wonder, um, you know, when a woman has that desire that goes against mm-hmm. all the cultural norms yes. for her, like where that comes from. You know, where Yeah where the courage comes from and and the determination and just the uh, just the vision even that yeah. that things could be different yes i I think that maybe intuitive to all people is to try to do the right thing for yourself or to seek after something and when you have children, you want to do it even more because it's not just doing it for yourself, it's doing it for them right. so somehow I don't know where you get the courage but you know, I guess all of us have had a dream that we've pursued, even though other people have said it's not going to go anywhere. But for these women, it's the difference between really living in the light and staying in the dark. Yeah. You it's, know, it's, it's not just the holiday. I, I, just, I just have to think about, you know, when, when we have a desire, how easily we're sometimes put off from it, you know, by what someone else might say or, you know, and just how much... Um, they're going against to go for what they want. Well, another example I can give you is that many of the women tell us that they they work as a maid in a wealthier household. And some of them will say that their madams will say, it's time for you to go to school, go to school, that's wonderful, and encourage them. But many others who they say are the bad madams will say, you can't leave, you can't go to school, that's stupid, you're stupid, you know, you're not going to learn and nothing's going to happen, and so then chances are these women will end up leaving that job and trying to make a few pennies or tacos some other way because most of them just know that their only salvation is getting to school. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and who wants to be around that person <laughs> anyway? Yeah, although you know, until that moment they had no choice, Right. You know? Because they had yeah. no school to go to and, and none of their other, nobody else who was going to become their friend. Women, mm-hmm. you know, will talk about the support they get from each other. For example, one woman who I went to meet because I was bringing a gift to her from her sponsor in Toronto, her sponsors, and so it was about 8.30 at night, it was dark, it was quite treacherous finding my way with a guide, with somebody else, into the little back alley of the slum where she lived, 
and we found her. She was at the communal pump in the middle of, of a cluster of little shacks and rooms off of little alleys, and it was the communal pump for maybe 30 or 40 families, and she was washing her pots and pans because she had to now go and cook dinner, which I will tell you, cooking dinner, communal kitchen, which exists of like a double-sized hot plate on the edge between a couple of houses or rooms. Mm-hmm. That's Anyways, she was there. In her letter to her sponsor later, she said that she will treasure this gift and show her children, her grandchildren, that someone in Canada cared so much for her, they sent her a gift. She also went on to say that she was too shy to tell me when I came, but she was expecting a baby, and she just found out. So she said that um, she hoped that her sponsors in Toronto wouldn't be too mad at her, but once she found out she was pregnant, she knew she had to get a job for a little while to save some money in case she needed surgery or she needed some assistance and to buy some better food for her. Because now that she's been to school, she knows that um, vitamins and calcium and protein and things like that are all important for a pregnant mother. And she's so, planning. Yes. You know, she's it, making plans. Yes. And right? She's, yeah. And so, but she was shy to tell me. She also, tell, as I've heard from other women who are pregnant, saying that when they tell their classmates, they help them and they encourage them and so something that would be just fearful to them because how am I going to bring another child in? Suddenly they have the support of their sisters. Mm. And and so she, this woman said that she could go to the free clinic because it's available to the poorest people, but you go there, there's usually nobody there, or the doctor or the nurse didn't come or it's closed. So mm. one of the... One of her sisters in the school knows somebody who's going to be able to help her get to see a doctor. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it's just amazing what yes. people will do. Yeah. yeah. Lots lots, and lots of stories. So yes. in, in Bangladesh, what are the barriers to education? Well, first of all, it's a country with a huge population about 162 million, something like that. And it's it's a country that has been independent since 1971, which isn't really all that long ago. And mm-hmm. it's um, a country that was, was it, prior to that was um, part of Pakistan and prior to that was part of India. And so it's gone through a lot of changes just itself. It has this huge population, a lot of it uneducated, and it's uneducated because there's not the resources for the government to put up um, easily accessible public schools that all children and all people can get to. Um, there's a lot of corruption, as there is in a lot of struggling countries. There's um, just a belief that I, I think it's come out of, a, out of a part of the world where there was a real caste system for a long time, and so there's some very rich people, very well-to-do mm-hmm. people. There's merchants and things like that. And then there's this huge masses of uneducated people that provide the um, sort of not the brain power but the muscle power mm-hmm. for for the rest of the to function. Um, and, and so in the slums, the option of education just doesn't seem to be there. It's like the 
bad madam who says, why would you get educated? You're, you know, you can't learn. You can't learn. And it's not just the bad madam. It's many of the systems, and it's a belief that these people in the slums can't learn and that then mm. can't amount to something. And so then when you've lived with that for always, you believe it, except right. that there's a little spark inside of you that thinks maybe that's not right, and you find something that will sort of light the spark or fan the spark, but a lot of people never have that opportunity. So I think then there's the culture that we've talked about, the traditions that women don't um, you know, get education and don't move ahead, certainly not slum women, because there are educated women in other parts of the city and the country who are you know, doctors and lawyers, and the prime minister is a woman. But the slum women aren't considered to be, I suppose, the same type of woman or as much of a human being as the woman outside the slum. Maybe that's wow. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and you, you kind of alluded to that if no one in the family's ever gone to school, right, they don't see yes. that as a possibility for them. It, yes. It's just not yeah. in there. It's, it's yeah. just not something that they um, that they see for themselves without. Right. Um, and then you do see children going off to school, but they're in uniforms and they're traveling in a little school bus, which is just a little teeny tiny cart, really, but it's it's um, sort of fenced in so that the children are safe and they're taken. But that costs money, and if you live in the slums, you don't have money for the transportation. You don't have money for the uniform. You don't have right. money to send your child away and have to send a meal with them. So the schools, again, are brilliant. They're only a couple of hours a day. They're on their auntie or their mother's bed or mat beside the bed. They're supplied with the pencil and notebook, but they don't have to get um, a uniform. They don't have to bring a lunch. They don't have to travel to another part of the area. Mm -hmm. And those are real barriers. It's not costing their parents anything to send them. There's no tuition Mm -hmm. because those expenses, the tuition expenses are covered by the Amarok, who hopefully receive money from donations to be able to do so. Right. Um, so what kinds of jobs do um, do people go out and get if you know without education? What what are some of those jobs? Well, without education, many men become rickshaw drivers. Um, and as I said, my favorite form of transportation, but it's really a very labor-intensive, difficult job for mm. men have that. Um, becoming a vendor on the street so that you they buy something and then they're able to sell it. Um, running a little tea shop, which is usually just on the street, where, and a lot of women I saw do this, but it's women and men or a couple, where they have a little hot plate or a fire with, with a kettle on so they can make tea and have another bucket where they can wash cups out. And so people stop and, you know, we'll have a cup of tea. Um, if there's construction projects going on, having to break down the the um, stones or the bricks so that they can be used in some other kind of construction. Um, working in the garment factories, which we've all heard so much about, and some of them are absolutely horrible, terrible, terrible conditions. Many of them are. But these are the kinds of jobs that somebody with no education 
who's not literate, who can't um, add and subtract. These are some of the things being made in a in a wealthier household, which might not be wealthy by our standards, but you know, just a little bit more mm-hmm. money coming in. Those are Barbara, the sorts of jobs. Describe to us um, a bit about uh, the health care in Bangladesh as well. Well, there's many private clinics, and if people have money, they are able to go. There's hospitals, which, you know, I understand have good reputations. And again, if you can pay, you can go there. I think that some of them are government-sponsored, and I would, I've would i never been in any of them, but I would bet you would find that those are not up to the standards of the private hospitals. Um, there's public free clinics, but as I mentioned with talking about one of the pregnant women, you can go there and there's often not a doctor there. There's doctors in the slums in the communities, which everybody calls a clock doctor, who's not really trained, but has might have some training from their parent and sort of learnt by doing, and that doesn't offer a very good quality. But I think that if, for example, I hate to say this, but if I had become sick while I was there, I'm sure I would have been able to receive some fairly decent health care because I would, I'm a foreigner and because I would have been able to pay for it. Right, right. But there's, yeah. there's universities with medical schools, and I think that the training can be quite good. I think that the accessibility is really uh-huh. restricted. While we were there, we spent about $20.00 and we're able to send a woman to have to a specialist for an eye examination and get a pair of glasses and she was one who was virtually blind up till then but she wow. would never be able to save the 20 dollars to be able to go uh, and see a specialist and get a pair of glasses wow 20 dollars is nothing Lynn. no no <laughs> i mean for us if you and i went out for lunch today we'd spend more Oh, yes. Yeah, we'll have to think about that. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. So what about the the schools? Are are they well accepted in in Bangladesh? Um, Are they, um, is there opposition to the schools? Um, What are the conditions like that way? Schools are very well received. Um, I think that at this point, they're they're transparent. You know, the government knows they're they're registered with the government and have the proper um, accreditation to be able to run. So there's nothing like that that's a problem. I think that the government is really appreciative because they know that it's better to have educated people. The government does, but they can't afford to do it and they can't reach all people. So I don't believe that there's any opposition that way. The difficulty can be that there's other um, factions that perhaps it's to their advantage to keep people down. You know, some of the terrorists that that and the evils that sort of threaten the whole world. You know, bank mm-hmm. upon being able to have um, a receptive population that they can draw upon. Right. So, so I think that that's a problem in Bangladesh the same way as in others. Although I certainly never experienced um, any acts of that kind of terrorism, or but it's it's certainly there. There's extremists everywhere, and I think that this is the kind of population that's very vulnerable. 
when you think of that part of the world, and we've we've met, mentioned Pakistan, mm-hmm. and of course there have been some um, terrible things happening in in Pakistan's mm-hmm. um, around the the question of education and certainly women's education mm-hmm. um, in uh, in that part of the world. So, what does the organization hope to accomplish next, Barbara? Well, we hope to be able to expand our our schools in Bangladesh, and instead of having 20, have 2,000 would be nice, wow. would be great, yes. Um, we also have just recently, in the last few months, expanded into Pakistan and into Nigeria, where we have one school in Pakistan that we're doing. We have a partner organization that is uh, was already established in Pakistan. It's like-minded, and we've become partnered with them in Pakistan, and similarly in Nigeria, where we have two schools. That's very new. That's sort of hot off the press. That happened in January. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so we certainly would like to see expanding into other countries where the same system would be brilliant, where teaching a mother teach, teaches the children, and that would be the, you know, the best result. Um, mm-hmm. And I said those to Nigeria and Pakistan, it's new. Bangladesh would be great to have 2,000 mm-hmm. schools. Um, oh, I should just tell you a neat little vignette. We just recently celebrated around the world International Women's Day. And yes. in Bangladesh, the Amarok mothers all celebrated International Women's Day. Wow. They made banners. They all, they had games and celebration in their schools and they had banners and they marched through their slums singing and talking and just felt that they were real joining all their sisters around the world who they thought sure were doing the same. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what made the Monroe so passionate about teaching women in Bangladesh? I think they just have a huge passion for education and a huge passion to assist the downtrodden and a compelling need that they have to do something, that they can't wait on somebody else, that they need to do it. And on that thought, um, Mm -hmm. let's tell people how they can, if they're touched by this story, how can people help? Well, they can go to our website. They can Google Amarok Society, and that's A-M-A-R-O-K, Society, they can search for us and friend us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, that, can, and it has all the information about how to make a donation. It has lots more information about the schools, and it's um, a really wonderful way. You can make donations by, by, by check, by visa, by PayPal. It's all the information is there. Plus, um, if you want to sponsor a mother, it's $500 a year. If you want to make a donation, it's any amount you want. Mm-hmm. And it's That's all right there on Google, Google it or go to Facebook sure. and like us. And if you like us on Facebook, you'll get our newsletters. Okay, yeah, and, and that, would, that would keep us uh, keep us up to date on what's uh, going on, wouldn't it? Yes. Um, yeah. what, what would you really hope that our listeners understand about women and education and Amarok? I really hope that people understand that people all over the world, women, children, and men, but we work with the women and children that primarily, have a passion to improve themselves 
and that they just need to have a door open for them and they will go through it. And I, I think that's really, really important that people around the world don't just happily live in poverty. They very dismally live in poverty and right. they want to survive and they want to flourish and they want to look after their children just like the rest of us do. Oh, that's and, wonderful. Barbara, yeah. thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. We wish you uh, great success in your work with the Amarok Society, and I'm sure we'll hear from you again. Okay. Thank you. And can I just say it's A-M-A-R-O-K, just again, just in case anybody's looking for it. A K on the end. Amarok. The way it sounds, but with a K on the end. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Lynn. No, thank you, Barbara. Okay. So as we uh, wrap things up today, I'd like to talk a little bit uh, about the purpose of the show. Um, one thing we like to do is give people and organizations um, the opportunity to tell about the contributions um, that they're making in our communities. If you know someone or an organization who is making a contribution, I'd be really pleased if you brought that to my attention. There's so many great stories uh, like this one today that we would love to share. Um, Next, we share traditional money management practices that we can all benefit from. Uh, We've had a lot of professionals on the show that have brought us some great money management techniques. Uh, If there's a topic you'd like to hear discussed uh, or on the show, please let me know and we'll look for someone to speak on that topic. Um, The next goal of the show is to assist you in your planning, and I advocate for planning for everything, for major purchases, for vacations, uh, our children's education, for your retirement, uh, for your charitable giving, and perhaps a gift in your will, that legacy that you may uh, wish to Uh, wish to leave. My goal is to give you confidence. My goal is that you may know the joy of making a contribution as well. It feels good to give, but we have to have confidence. Uh, It's hard to give if you live in fear. We take control of our situation and get it on track, then it's easy to share our good fortune and our good feelings. So, this is Lynn Wedham. The show is Separate with Lynn. Until next time, take the right steps to support yourself. Thank you for choosing to listen to Step Right with Lynn. Lynn Wedham will return next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Mountain, and 6 a.m. Pacific on AtoZen.fm. We hope you'll join us. Remember to celebrate your wealth by doing something for yourself, your family, and your community. Until next time, 